Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. And let's do the smart thing and have a uh, quick word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, as always, um, Lord, you wrote this, so just give us understanding that only you can give. And uh, we just pray that you'd be with us as we try to go deeper in you. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak, and we would listen, and you would teach, Lord, and we would listen. Just ask for a blessing upon all classrooms in the back as well, too, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right, Ecclesiastes 7. Now, we've been going at a pretty good pace here through the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to do about a couple chapters a week. Chapter 7 is a little bit longer chapter, and so we're only going to do the one chapter here today. Um, it's a very, very good chapter. In fact, it reminds me a lot of going through Proverbs. You know, we believe that uh, Solomon wrote Proverbs, and probably Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. So you see a very similar teaching style between them, a lot of the same points. Now, here in Ecclesiastes, if you haven't been with us, forgive me for the repetition for those that have. just want to remind everybody, this book is written from the perspective of someone going backwards instead of forwards in their walk with the Lord. This book is written from the perspective of someone who is basically having 12 chapters of woe is me, God why, and a little bit of whining. I like this book because I appreciate the honesty of this book because we all have these Ecclesiastes moments in our lives of Lord why, I don't get this, I don't like what's going on. Well, through the first six chapters, Solomon has had a pretty good venting, whining, woeing session. Now in chapter 7, he's starting to get back now his eyes of where they're supposed to be. He still has some times where he falls into the pit, but he's trying to do better. Now remember, I always have to say this, because you may not be with us here at the end of this study, but at the end of the book, in chapter 12, Solomon gets it. He does finally get it, and he finally comes to the conclusion of fear God. Let us hear the conclusion of this whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon went through everything in life. He tried the wisdom route. He tried the pleasure route. He tried the woe is me route. I wish I was just dead. None of it brought the conclusion until he got to the focus of it's just God. Fear God and put him first. So that's how he ends it. And now our study is how does he get to that point? So with that being said, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. Stop. Told you it's going to take us a while to get through this chapter. That idea of name, that word literally means character, your witness, your reputation. Who you are is your name. And Solomon is saying that good name is better than anything. We could all sit here right now and I could list people's names from history or from recent events. And as soon as I said their name, you'd probably think of something that happened to them, some type of action they did that they're now notorious for because their reputation was tarnished by what they did. That's why it's so vital to have this good name, this good character, this good witness, this good representation because your name represents not only you, but what's built on this. If I go out and do something stupid, fine, my name is tarnished. Okay, well, with my name being tarnished, my wife's name is tarnished too because we're one flesh. Well, if my wife's name is tarnished, well, then my family name is tarnished. My boys will live that for the rest of their lives, and then my extended family. And then even going one step further, then as the pastor of this church, this church is tarnished. That would be the church where the pastor did that. And then even going one step further, the name of Christ is tarnished because I am a representation of Jesus Christ. I am the body of Christ just like you're the body of Christ. See, so often we get to these moments of, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It's my life. It's my choice. You are so interconnected and intertwined with other people that whatever your actions do will affect someone else. That's just the fact of it. You may try to convince yourself that you can do whatever you want and it won't affect anybody, but that's really just a lie. Your actions will affect other people. And ultimately, if you claim to be a born-again Christian, your actions represent Christ, the body of Christ. In fact, the Bible says you're an ambassador of Christ. 
You represent God. When you leave today and you go into work, you go into home, you go into school, whatever it is, you are representing the God of the universe in whatever you do. That's a pretty big load to carry on your shoulders. In fact, Paul goes one step further, and he says that your life is like an open book, known and read by all. People look at you, and therefore they have a judgment on God then by how you represent God. Now, some of us sitting here today don't like that pressure. I've heard people say this. I've even said this. Well, that's why I don't uh, wear the Christian shirts. That's why I don't have the Christian bumper stickers, and that's why I don't take my Bible to work. Well, that's really not the answer is to hide your candle then under the, ba the basket, it says in the New Testament. The answer then is to say, why don't I want to represent the Lord? What is in my life that I know that is so bad, so deep, so dark, that it doesn't want to come to light because it will tarnish God? If we know there's something in our hearts that would be a bad witness, Lord, help us to change those things through you. Because that's the goal is to be that ambassador, that witness for Christ. So that good name is important. And when do you talk about somebody's name? What do you usually talk about? You talk about when they die. You stand up there and do the funeral. No, you talk about who that person is and what that name represents, their reputation, etc. You know, anytime I do a funeral, I always try to do two things. Is the most important one is to point the people towards Jesus Christ. And number two, the next one is to uh, you know, bring comfort to the family as you speak about their deceased loved one. Well, see, Solomon has this idea here. It's your name. It's your reputation. It takes him right into this concept of death. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This idea of death, such a taboo subject. We try to stay away from it all the time, don't we? And it's a fact. If you're sitting here today, you will either die or be raptured. One of those two events are going to happen to you. By pretending it's not going to happen, I don't know what we're trying to gain. Death is a fact, and it's something that is there. It affects us. The people spend their whole life running from the thought of death. They do. Why? Because it's a fear thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15. The Bible says that Satan has the power of that fear of death. You don't realize how many people are just afraid of that concept of death and dying. It is. It's kind of a scary thing. A lot of what-ifs comes out of that. But yet we spend our whole life trying to pretend things don't happen. I shared with you the story before of last year when the boys were out playing and they had that cat named Cat Sissy and Judah came and said, Daddy, Cat Sissy, Cat Sissy is sleeping and he won't wake up. And I said, well, what do you mean he won't wake up? He goes, I'm, he won't wake up. I said, oh, the cat's dead. I said, Judah, did you touch it? He goes, oh, yeah, I was trying to wake it up and I was poking it with a stick. You know, we tried to teach our kids this idea of death. So we went to Walmart or a fish, and we bought two goldfish. And we said, okay, this will be a good experience with them. I grew up with fish, this idea of they will take care of the fish, they will learn and understand, and let's just be honest, these are feeder fish, like 10 cents a piece. They're going to they're gonna die. I mean, that's just what happens. Two and a half years later, those things are still alive. I'm not kidding. Two and a half years later, those things are still living on our counter, living. I've never wanted something to die so bad in my life. <laughs> So this idea of death is there, but yet we run from it. And, and I, I've talked to people, it's like, well, I don't want to talk about it. Why? Generally, when someone doesn't want to talk about death, it's because they're afraid of it. Listen, I will, I will quote Bob Wright on this. Bob Wright always used to say this, and I always thought it was great. He goes, I'm prepared, but I'm not ready. I thought, what a true statement. I'm prepared. I know what's going to happen to me when I die. I know where I'm going to go. I know where my wife's going to go. I know where my kids are going to go. I'm prepared. Am I ready for that event? Well, no, not really. I mean, Paul wrote at the beginning of Philippians that he says part of him wants to go home to heaven, but the other part of him wants to stay and keep doing the things that God has called him to do. I feel the same way. 
I'm prepared. I know where I'm going to go. I know where my wife's going to go. Am I ready for that event? Well, not at this moment, no. But yet, as a Christian, it's not something we shy away from. And what Solomon is trying to say here in verses 2 through 4 is this idea of death makes you think. That's the point of it. It makes you think. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that one verse in Ecclesiastes where God says he has put eternity in your heart to make you ponder these things. In the 11 years I've been out here, I've done a lot of weddings, I've done a lot of funerals. And I use the same verses for each one usually consistently because they fit so nicely. For the wedding I like to use 1 Corinthians 3.11. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I talk about the only foundation of a life is Christ and the only foundation of a marriage is Christ. Now, at the funerals, I always like to use John 11, where Lazarus died, and the sister comes up to Jesus and says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And Christ has that great response. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not perish. And then he asks, he goes, do you believe this? And I always ask the people doing the funeral. That's a very poignant question. Christ says, do you believe that he's the resurrection and the life? Now, here's the catch. Of the weddings and funerals I've done, I don't know if too many people have ever come up to me after a wedding and said, wow. That message really touched me. They don't care about the pastor at a wedding. No one cares about the pastor at a wedding. You got the bride looking there all pretty. You got the groom looking nice. Everybody's focused on the bride and groom. It's a joyous occasion. No one cares about the pastor. In fact, when I'm doing weddings out here, I always tell people, I got to stand up top because I'm so short. If I stand here, they don't even see me. I want to be seen at least. No one cares. Now, when I do a funeral, people come up afterwards and generally say something. Why? Because when you're at a wedding, it's joyous, it's exciting, your whole attention is bride and groom. It's the beginning of a new step, a new relationship. When you're at a funeral, not to be crass, you're sitting there, there's a casket, you've got a lot of time to think. And as you sit there and think, you start wondering about death. And that's the point that Solomon is trying to say here. Death makes you ponder. It makes you think. Some of you out here, and I don't get it, I find it a little strange, the first thing you look at in the paper are the obituaries. I don't get that. To me, it's like some type of game. I made it past him. I don't know. But the point is, you start looking at this and you start realizing that person wasn't much older than me. That person was younger than me. And it makes you start thinking then about death. And Solomon says, that's good. Because when you think about those things, it really makes you stop and say, okay, am I taking steps in my life now realizing it is a fact I am going to die. But yet, if you're not prepared for that, you won't be ready for it, and that fear of death will bother you. And that's where Christ said, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. See, so when you're born again in Christ, once again, you're prepared. You may not be ready for the event, but you're prepared for it. Solomon says it's not a bad thing to sit there and think about these things. Next thing he thinks about, he gets back on the wisdom kick now. Look at verse 5. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. Thus also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man of reason, and a bribe debases the heart. See, when you start thinking about death, you start thinking about the things you need to change in your life. You feel a little convicted. You feel a little rebuked. God says, once again, that's not really a bad thing. Turn, if you will, to Proverbs. Because once again, there's a lot of Proverbs that fit in nicely with this. It's the same mindset. Go to Proverbs 15, please. Proverbs 15. Let's talk about this idea of rebuking. When we were going through our study in Proverbs, as you're going to Proverbs 15, we made this statement. No one likes to be rebuked, and no one really likes to rebuke people. It's not fun really being on either side of it. 
It's not enjoyable. But it's a fact of life. If I love you, I will love you enough to say, hey, I'm concerned about you. I'm afraid that area will cause harm in your life. If you love me, hopefully you have enough to come to me and say, James, I'm concerned about you. That's that idea of rebuking. But here's the thing. We all respond to it differently. Proverbs 15, look at verse 12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him. Or will he go to the wise? See, some people don't want to be corrected. And so therefore they just don't want to deal with it. I'm usually on the other side of that. I try to call them. I try to contact them to say, hey, I'm concerned. They don't want to talk to me. They know why I'm calling. They know why I'm contacting. They don't want to deal with it. So therefore, verse 12, they don't love the one that corrects them. They don't want to go to the wise. They just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be rebuked. I know what I'm doing is wrong, so therefore I don't want to be around it. Don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. That's probably the reason why people don't come to church. They don't get in the Word. They don't get into worship because as there's things in their life they know is wrong, as they get closer to their walk in God, they start realizing those things are wrong, and they just don't want to deal with it. So therefore, they try to stick their head in the sand or run from it. That's the immature response. But what's the mature response? Stay in Proverbs. Go to chapter 19, please. Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19, verse 25 says, Strike a scoffer, and the simple will become weary. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. Proverbs 19, verse 25. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. The mature response is to say, okay, you're telling me something you're concerned about. I will listen to this. But once again, no one likes to be rebuked, and no one likes to do the rebuking. It's not fun for me to go to people and say, hey, but you know what? I love you enough to come to you and say, hey, I am concerned about you. And I don't really like being on the flip side either of someone says, hey, have you ever thought about this? That hurts a little. It stings a little. So I can do one of two things. I can either run from those people or I can accept it and have understanding and discern knowledge and realize there's wisdom in listening to this correction. See, Solomon is saying, when you're faced with death, it makes you think about who you are, your name, verse 1, your reputation. But it also makes you think about what you're doing in life. And maybe things need to be changed. Maybe things need to be corrected. That's what he says. That's the point of death. It makes you think about who you are and what needs to be changed in your life. Now, wisdom says, are you going to do something about it? Look at verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning these things. Here's that key word, verse 8, patience. Ah, patience is a tricky thing. I had somebody say one time, you never pray for patience. Because the only way you can learn patience is by going through things that test your patience. There's some truth to that. Patience is a tough thing, but the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And people treat patience like some type of genetic defect. I'm just an impatient person. You choose to be an impatient person. You're not genetically inclined to be impatient. Everybody deals with issues of patience. Well, they're just more patient than me. No, they're a better Christian than you. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, we are always use these excuses of, I'm just impatient. No, it's something you need to work on then. Same thing, I have a temper. Well... You need to work on that then. So verse 8, you need to work on your patience. Well, then let's work on your patience. The problem with patience is you're dealing with people that test your patience. You work with people. You live with people. You may be married to people. You maybe go to church with those people that test your patience. That's the hard part. So when you have patience, you're really dealing with two things. You're dealing patience with man and then patience with God. Because here's the thing about patience with God. We don't look at it from this perspective. Some of you are impatient with the Lord. You're impatient with his time frame. He doesn't move quick enough for you. He doesn't answer prayer soon enough. He doesn't move in that area. You're impatient with his will. Well, why would God allow this? And you're impatient with his will because you don't like what's going on. And there's some of us that are just impatient with man. And that is a tough thing that we have to work through. Let's talk about this for a second. 
Let's deal with dealing with people. See what happens when you're impatient with people? You're impatient, verse 8. Verse 9 makes you angry, which verse 9 says you're a fool. Because that's really what it comes down to, is if your impatience causes you to lose your temper with people, God says you're a fool for that. If you're taking notes, write this down, Proverbs 14.29. Proverbs 14.29. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Do you know somebody that's impulsive? Just says exactly without their mind, without thinking about it. They're the type of person that just does this and does that with no prayer, no thought, no wisdom. That impulsiveness is a folly. It makes them a fool, and it gets them into trouble. Well, I don't need this job. I'm out of here. I don't need you. I'm never going to talk to you again. I don't. And that folly makes them a fool, the Bible says, because they're not being patient and trusting and realizing what God is doing. And here's the thing, and we talked about this Wednesday a little bit. It's this idea of patience with others. On, on Wednesday, we studied the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. And one of the things that happened every seventh year in the Old Testament is the slaves were set free. But as the slaves were set free, the masters were told to bless them. And God says, as your slaves are being set free, he goes, I want you to give them things, give them provisions. He goes, because you were a slave in Egypt, and as I have set you free, I want you to set them free, and I have blessed you, I want you to bless them. And we talked about on Wednesday how that's a great concept, but the truth of the matter is as Christians... When we're dealing with somebody that has a past, we're usually not patient with them. And it's amazing how because some of us sitting here this morning have a torrid past. But yet when we see somebody that's in the position that we were 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's amazing how judgmental we become. You know, maybe your life wasn't impeccable and you made a lot of bad choices, a lot of dumb choices, said a lot of things you shouldn't. So now when you run into somebody who's the spitting image of you from 20 years ago, it's amazing. God had patience with you, but yet we're really frustrated with them. You know, why don't they? Why don't they do this? God says, wait a second. I had patience with you 20 years ago, and I gave you grace. I gave you mercy. Can't you have patience with them? Look at that, and that's a tough one. In the spiritual mirror, this is what I notice. Usually the people that frustrate me the most are the people that are struggling with the same things I'm struggling with. And as I deal with them, I can looking in the spiritual mirror, and those things that frustrate me and them, to be quite honest, are the things I'm struggling with myself. So the reason I don't have patience with them is because really I'm just convicted because I'm looking at myself. God says patience. Patience keeps your temper, verse 9, and it keeps you from being a fool. Now let's talk about patience with God. How many of us sit here and think sometimes that God's not moving quick enough? I'm praying and he's not answering. Why isn't he doing things? God says, wait a second, don't you trust me? Don't you trust that I'm going to work in this situation? And this is a point we're building up to because we're going to get to some deeper verses here in a little bit that really get into this idea of, of the Lord. So hold that thought because we're going to get to that in just a couple verses. But the point is, we start then thinking, oh, it'd be so much better if. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than this? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. How many of us do that? We live in this fantasy world. Things are so much better when fill in the blank. You know, right now life is kind of crazy. I've shared with you before at the Irvin household with the kids. And so therefore, every now and then Dawn and I would talk and, and I will say something to the effect of, boy, do you, do you remember? Because Dawn and I were married uh, nine years before we started having kids. And I started saying, boy, do you remember what it was like when we didn't have children and everything? And you start thinking about that. It's like, well, I remember our first apartment, and I've shared this with you before. You know, we didn't have any money, so you ate spaghetti all day. I hate spaghetti. I don't want to go back to that. I can remember going out to eat with her family and not having enough money to even buy McDonald's. And, you know, you had this little tiny apartment. So we sit there, and it's like, oh, look at those memories. It's like, no, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that at all. Some people say, it was so much better, whatever, fill in the blank. And I start realizing the season of life I'm in right now is always the best season of life. Because if I go back a couple years ago, well, then I don't have a couple kids. 
If I go back longer, I don't have the wisdom, hopefully, that has been gained in my walk with the Lord over these few years. I made some pretty dumb choices years ago. Still do. But the point is, we always sit there and fantasize about how great it was or how great it's going to be. Boy, that's a dangerous place to be in. The Jews did that. When they came out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness now, and they were looking for food, and they were looking for water, what did they always do? They always complained. Always complained about how much better it was in Egypt. Oh, if I was Moses, I would just smack them. And just say, you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves. You're saying that it was better in Egypt. You were slaves. You are now free. Your water is provided by a rock that just springs it forth. Every morning you get up, there's quail and manna. You're free. But yet we sit there in this, woe is me. Life was better then. Life will be better here. And Solomon says there is no wisdom in living in that fantasy world. He goes, where you're at now is where you need to be, and you focus your attention on that. And say, God, help me. That's wisdom. Look at verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. Verse 12 is the key verse of this chapter. Wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. Here's the key. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Wisdom gives you life. What is wisdom? We've said this every chapter so far in Ecclesiastes. According to Colossians... Wisdom is Jesus, and wisdom is God's Word. When you have your life focused around Christ, and you have your life focused around God's Word, you have wisdom, and that brings you life. If you live your life without Christ, there's no wisdom in that. That's death. If you live your life without following the rules of the Word, that is death. There's no wisdom in that. God says if you want life, you do wisdom, and wisdom says it's Jesus and the Word. How simple is that? How simple is that? And that's what God says we need to do. The problem is, though, going back now to not having patience with God, not liking the season of life we're in, verse 10, we sit there and say, but God. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. So consider the work of God. See, what, what Solomon is saying is, okay, you think you got it all figured out. You think you know what's best for your life. You think you know the best answer and the best plan. He goes, what does God think about it? It goes back to Job. So you've got to remember in Job, Job's a, a tough book. For the first 37 chapters in the book of Job, Job and his three friends just whine, mope, and complain about everything. God lets them do it for 37 chapters. They try to figure things out. Why did God do this? Why did God allow that? And they come to no conclusion in any way whatsoever. And don't we do that as humans? Haven't you ever got your friends around? And you just sit there and have that pity party of why did God do this? Why did... And you sit there for 37 chapters. You don't figure anything out and you don't get any better. Finally, in chapter 38, the Bible says that God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And he tells Job, first off, he says, man up. And maybe not in those terms, but that's what he says. Man up. And then he goes to the next verse. He goes, where were you? And God now gets into this long discourse of Job. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? God says, basically, I've let you listen to you moan for 37 chapters. And now I'm going to tell you, get your head straight. Focus on me because I will get you through this. Now, here's the catch of the book of Job. We know the beginning, we know the end. Do you realize when you stay in the book of Job, Job never realizes why these things happen to him. He never sees the picture. He doesn't have the luxury of Job 1 and 2. He doesn't. He just lives Job 1 and 2. 
He doesn't see the heavenly seed. That's not revealed to him in any way. So Job is just sitting there watching his family die, watching all his possessions disappear, and watching his health go downhill. And he's got a lot of questions. It never is answered other than God saying, Job, you just got to trust me. So what does Job do? Turn, if you will, to Job 1. Let's talk about this for a second. Job 1, please. Job 1 reveals his heart and what he did on this. Two great verses here in Job 1 and Job 2 that we really need to focus on when times get rough. And Job 1, after Job lost everything, and if you're looking for it, Job is right before the book of Psalms, so just a couple books to the left of Ecclesiastes. In Job 1, Job loses everything. But his response is this, Job 1, verse 20. And Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord give, and the Lord have taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, that's a powerful passage. Because at verse 20, he fell to the ground and worshipped. Now see, I don't want to get into a topical about worship. It's important to mention this as we run into this verse. So often we base worship on what God did. So therefore, God has given me a good week. So therefore, God gets more worship. That's backwards. What has God done for Job in Job chapter 1? Nothing. From our perspective, nothing, I should say. Job still worship because worship is based on God and who his character is, not the circumstances of your life. There's times of worship in your life where God has done something amazing and you just stop and say, Lord, thank you. Don't I had something recently happen where it's just, Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for doing that. That circumstance just praise you, Lord. But there's a lot of times where you just need to stop and don't I try to do this in our prayer life. Lord, we just want to praise you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your salvation. Just praise you for who you are as God, regardless of the circumstances we're in. See that phrase there, Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. We just sang that song for worship. See, the part of that song is, no matter what situation I'm going through, God, do me the glory. See, let's go one step further into the life of Job, though. Jump ahead to chapter 2. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? See, Job says, wait a second. If I'm worshiping God and realize God is good and does good, so therefore when something bad happens in my life, does that all of a sudden make God not good? Don't you know emotional Christians? I sure do. When God is good and doing good things in their life, my goodness, they're on fire for the Lord. They want to serve. They want to read. They want to pray. They can't get enough of a God. But as soon as a little adversity happens in their life, what has God ever done for me? Well, that's emotion. That's not a relationship with Christ. That's an emotional response to events in your life that you either blame God for or give God credit for. I don't know how many times in counseling in my office someone comes in and they said they're mad at God. Well, what has God done? Well, he did this. Well, wait a second. I don't know if God did that. Sounds like you made a choice and there's consequences. But yet we blame God. For so many things. And as we blame God for these things of, well, why isn't he filling in the blank? Job says, wait a second, I don't know what's going on in my life, but no matter what I'm facing, be it good or bad, to God be the glory, because I know he's there. Now, that's a tough concept. And Solomon struggles with that. Now, Solomon's doing really good here through the first 14 verses. Now, all of a sudden, he changes his mind. And, and I hope you see the next point here, because this leads us to some of these big things. Look at verse 15. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. Now, haven't we all been there before? Wait a second. So God is good, he does good, and all this other stuff. Then why is it, fill in the blank, my uncle, my aunt, my grandma, my mom, my dad, my friend, who's a good, godly person, they're the one that got cancer when they were young, they were the one that died in the fatal car accident, they did nothing wrong, they're the righteous person, yet they're dead? And then my 90-year-old neighbor, who's a jerk, who I can't stand, doesn't care about God, 
He's 90 years old and in perfect health. That's fair. Solomon says, I don't know if that's fair, he says. I can't tell if that's fair. Now, this is once again the mind of a man, and he's being honest. He goes, that's not right. Why is it the righteous person dies, but the wicked person keeps living? That doesn't make sense. And how many of us have gotten mad at God? Because God took them. Why did God take them from me? Wait a second. I didn't know they were mine to start with. So when God takes something, that means I had possession of it. The Bible makes it clear I don't possess anything in this world. So we get mad at the Lord for taking. Now that's an honest response in verse 15, but let's look at the biblical response. Two verses I want to share with you. First one is Psalm 116, verse 15. Psalm 116, verse 15. says, precious in the eyes of God is the death of one of his saints. So therefore, when we look at God taking somebody, we look at the just man perishing, God says, I don't look at it as that. He goes, I look at it as reward. That person's home in heaven. I've shared with you the Jewish fable, not true, that supposedly when Lazarus was resurrected that he neither smiled nor laughed the rest of his life because he was mad (laughs) that he came back. He wasn't happy about it. Isn't this amazing? And let's be honest, we've all been in this position, so I'm not picking on somebody. We sit here when we lose a loved one and we get mad at the Lord for taking them. If that loved one is a believer in God, they are being rewarded. We shouldn't be mad. We should be rejoicing that they're home in heaven. Now, that's a tough concept to sink your teeth in, and that's a tough concept to grasp. But it's a true concept. If we truly believe in rewards, if we truly believe in God taking care of us, that means he brought them home. Amen. But the selfishness of us is, I wasn't done with them yet. Well, then why does he allow the wicked to keep going? Maybe because God loves them. 2 Peter 3.9 3, says, God wishes that none would perish, that all come to salvation. Do you ever think that the Lord is keeping your 90-year-old wicked neighbor alive because hopefully that man comes to know Christ? Maybe God in his infinite love, grace, and mercy is saying, you know what? I'm going to keep this guy alive here while hoping that he eventually submits his heart to me. And so therefore he can have salvation because he goes, I have no joy in the death of the wicked, he said. When you look at it from that perspective, verse 15 all of a sudden makes maybe a little more sense. But if you look at it from the perspective of flesh, God took them. It's not fair. It's not right. Wait a second. We have to trust that the Lord is working in this situation. So what happens is Solomon says, what's the point? If I'm righteous, I'll die young. If I'm wicked, I don't know what's going to happen. I may die young. I may die old. It doesn't make any difference. So what does he say? Verse 16, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. He says, what's the point then? Solomon's response is just be middle. Don't be overly righteous, it doesn't do any good, but don't be overly wicked, it doesn't do any good. Is this not the concept of American Christianity? Just be in the middle. Don't, don't go crazy for the Lord because, you know, that's not good. You know, don't become one of those Jesus freaks, etc. Just be in the middle. Oh, yeah, but don't be really bad either. I mean, we're all believers here. So we get this middle-of-the-road concept of what it's supposed to be. And so therefore, because if you're really bad, well, then that's not good because you're supposed to be a Christian. But if you're really on fire for the Lord, well, wait a second, you're making us all look bad here. And no one likes an on-fire Christian because it's really awkward because they're always talking about heaven and hell and Jesus and salvation. So can't you just water down the Christianity a little bit and just stick to the middle? Come to church, there's no problems with that. Mention God every now and then, pray a little bit, but just don't get pushy about it. See, that's what the world wants, is that middle-of-the-road Christianity. I firmly believe a a true on-fire believer really makes people uncomfortable. It really does. Because what happens is you see what that person is doing in their life, and Lord, and it makes you think. (laughs) 
So Solomon's response is, and this is not the right response, but this is the response of man, just be in the middle. That's kind of interesting that that's his wisdom response, be in the middle. What did Jesus say about being in the middle in Revelation 3? He says, if you're lukewarm, because I'm going to spit you out. See, God says, I don't like lukewarm. I don't like middle of the road, he says. He says, in fact, in Revelation 3, he goes, I wish you were either hot or cold. He goes, but since you're lukewarm, he goes, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm Christians sometimes, I think, do more damage to the body of Christ than an atheist. Because those lukewarm Christians have this mindset of, I'm a believer, but yet their lifestyle is this middle-of-the-road lifestyle. The people see that and say, well, that must be okay. That person's a Christian. God says, no. We're separated from the world. We're different from the world. And so that middle-of-the-road Christianity, Solomon says that's the answer. God says, no, that's not the answer. The answer is wisdom, verse 19. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. It comes back to that idea of wisdom, seeking wisdom of God in these situations and realizing what the Lord is, what he's doing, wisdom. Well, what's the hard part about wisdom? Well, verse 20, there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also, you own, you, your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. See, it's all supposed to be about wisdom, but the problem is we really don't apply wisdom because wisdom tells us, verse 20, there's no one who does good. Did you realize, verse 20, we're, we're all sinners. Every one of us sitting here today is a sinner. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved. But we forget that part that we're sinners, so therefore, verse 21, we hear somebody say something negative about us. And it just flattens us. Can't believe what they said. Do you believe this person said this about me? Yeah, I do. Because they're a sinner. Verse 20, they say things they shouldn't say. Well, they shouldn't say anything about that. That's just not right. I agree that's not right. But the truth of the matter is verse 22. Let's just be honest with each other. Haven't you said something about somebody else behind their back? I know you're perfect. I've said things and I shouldn't have done it. And if somebody here truly believes they haven't said anything about it, well, you're a liar and I wouldn't want to sit near you. See, I'll say it to your face. But the truth is... You said stuff, I've said stuff. Why have we said stuff? Because verse 20, we are sinners. And, and I'm still battling the flesh. And so what happens in verse 21, I get so worked up when somebody does something to hurt me or something to bother me or somebody says something, and God says, wait a second. You're really shocked that someone said something bad about you. You're really, that, that just totally amazes you that someone could look at your life and find something to complain about. And then he also adds verse 22. Like you've never done it to someone else? Now that's not saying it's right. This is not one of those karma, tit-for-tat verses. I don't want to make it sound that way. The truth of the matter is we get offended when someone does something to us, but when we do something to someone else, we're like, hey, grace, forgiveness. But it doesn't flip around both ways. Solomon is saying wisdom is realizing this. They're not perfect, and you're not perfect. That's wisdom, he says. And when you have that concept, grace and mercy becomes a lot easier. Let's finish this up. All this I approved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? Solomon says, I keep looking for these answers. Hasn't he said this every chapter in Ecclesiastes? I keep trying to find the answer, the meaning of life. I keep trying to find this purpose while I'm here. Verse 25, I applied my heart to know and to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. He says, the more I find out, the more I realize I don't know. If you remember a lesson from Proverbs a few weeks ago, 
it was there's wisdom in knowing you don't know anything. There's a lot of wisdom in realizing you don't know stuff. A lot of wisdom in that. And we keep searching and searching and searching, and we can't find answers. And this is why Solomon says life is vanity. Life is meaningless because he goes, I can't find the answers to life. Remember, Ecclesiastes is written from a perspective of a man going backwards instead of forwards. So to him, life is meaningless and pointless because he's trying to live his life without the Lord. If you are here this morning and you're trying to live your life without the Lord, your life is really meaningless and pointless. That's just honesty. Because if you do not have Christ in your life, then what is your purpose? Why? Why are you on this earth? What is your purpose in this world? Because without the Lord, you don't have Life. You're just moving through day to day. I work, I go home, I work, I go home, I live, I go home. What's the point of that? What a vain, meaningless existence that brings depression. And I'll be honest, it brings discouragement. And as you look around the world, verse 27, here's what I found, says the preacher. Adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul so seeks, I can't find. Because I keep looking, I can't find it. I can't find the reason. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He's kind of saying maybe one guy out of a thousand, I don't know, maybe not even a girl out of a thousand can find the reason. Verse 29, truly, this only I have found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is this conclusion of chapter 7. Now remember, this is one flow of a book, so this is not the end of it, but at this point he stops and he says, this is what I figured out. God started us out good, and now we're just all sinners. Boy, isn't that an honest assessment? He goes, God started us out good, but we're all sinners. And so he stops in this depression and this discouragement of look at the world, how depressing is the world. Look at me. My life is meaningless and pointless. Now, if we would stop right there, it would be a very meaningless and pointless existence. We have the beauty of the rest of scriptures to put the full picture together. Now, we know that at the end of Ecclesiastes, he figures it out. We know that. But at this point right now, where are we at? Well, we're at a guy that says your reputation is all that matters. And when you die, it makes you really think about your life, makes you think about the things that you need to change, which brings in rebuke, which then makes me realize I'm really not patient. I have a temper, I get angry, and I really am not nice towards other people, which then makes me realize I need more wisdom. But as I search out more wisdom, I can't find any answers, which just makes me more frustrated. And it's this classic dog chasing its tail. I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, so what am I going to do about this? We're all sinners. Life is meaningless. Life is pointless. Everywhere I look at sin, everywhere I look at destruction, there's nothing. Now, if you would stop right there, that's Ecclesiastes. That's a Solomon moment. But we know the full picture here. Turn, if you will, to Jeremiah 29. Let's end on this note. Because we do know the purpose. We do know the reason. And we do know that we don't look at circumstances. We look at the Savior. Turn to Jeremiah 29. This is what we'll finish with. Jeremiah 29. Let's look what God has to say about plans and purpose and, and putting him in perspective. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Wow, isn't that a great verse? That's what God thinks. When you're wondering what God is thinking, Lord, why? Why are you allowing this? God says, I have thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. What a beautiful passage that is, to know that those are the thoughts that God thinks towards you plan, a purpose, a reason for being here, a, a, a reason for what God wants you to do there in Jeremiah 29, 11. So when you're sitting here and, and saying, Lord, why? I don't get this. I don't understand this. I don't like this. God says, wait a second. I have thoughts of peace. I'll give you a future and a hope. Some of you may be saying, okay, well, where's my peace and my future and my hope? Well, let's keep reading verse 12. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen. 
Let me ask you this. When you're sitting there wondering and saying, Lord, why are you calling upon and going and praying to the Lord? Are you seeking him? Because God says, if you call upon me and pray to me, he goes, I will hear. Haven't you ever been in that spot in life where you think no one hears, no one understands, no one listens? God says, I'm there. I hear. I understand. I listen. He goes, why, Lord, is it still feeling an emptiness? Look at verse 13. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, here's the problem. A lot of us stop at the calling and the praying. We don't do the verse 13, the seeking, the finding, and the searching. God says, when you put effort into this, he goes, I will be there for you. I will be the God of comfort for you. I will get you through this tough time. But look, you have to seek, find, and search. Look at the end of verse 13. With all your heart. Let's just be honest for a second. How, how many of us put a half-hearted effort into our relationship with the Lord and then wonder why we get a half-hearted result back? I mean, we, we expect God to do everything, which he has. I mean, he's died on the cross. But yet, we don't put any effort into it. And then we say, okay, where's the peace that the pastor is promising? Where's that joy? Why are you searching and seeking and finding that peace and joy? Because God says, when you do that with all your heart, he goes, you will find me. That's a promise. Look at verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord. What a beautiful picture here in verses 11 through 14. God says, I think peace towards you. I have a future for you. I have a hope for you. He goes, but call, pray to me, and I will listen to you. And as I listen to you, seek me, find me, search for me with all your heart. Verse 14, I'll be found by you. God's not hiding. He's never hiding. God says, when we put effort into our walk with the Lord, you will be blessed by that. You will have that peace. You will have that joy. You will have that hope. You will have that purpose. But the truth of the matter is, when we sit here and get back into Ecclesiastes, and we have these Ecclesiastes moments of, Lord, why? Why me? This isn't fair. God says, you're just going to get to depression, discouragement. That's what's the result of that going to be. He goes, search me, find me, seek for me. He goes, I'm there for you, and I will be there for you when you put the effort into it. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. If you're in a tough